Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. For the Lord is God, and He created the heavens and earth and put everything in place. He made the world to be lived in, not to be a place of empty chaos. I am the Lord, He says, and there is no other. I publicly proclaim bold promises. I do not whisper obscurities in some dark corner. I would not have told the people of Israel to seek me if I could not be found. I, the Lord, speak only what is true and declare only what is right. Isaiah chapter 45 verses 18 and 19 English Standard Version You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and they exist because you created what you pleased. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, English Standard Version Hi, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. Today we are continuing to explore the origin of the universe and the beginning of life with our series that we call The Truth in Genesis. To help us in our exploration, we've invited Dr. Jonathan Sarfati to be our guest in the Anchored by Truth studio. Dr. Sarfati is the lead scientist for Creation Ministries International. He has written a number of widely selling books that bring an understandable yet comprehensive scientific perspective on what empirical observations actually tell us about the age of the earth and the origin of life. Dr. Sarfati has sold hundreds of thousands of books, such as Refuting Evolution, Volumes 1 and 2, By Design, The Greatest Hoax on Earth, and The Genesis Account. During this series, Dr. Sarfati has been answering questions about a wide variety of topics that pertain to the evidence that supports the historicity of the literal biblical account. Of course, we recognize that the overwhelming view in our culture today is that the universe is billions of years old and that life somehow arose spontaneously by a process labeled as evolution. But surprisingly enough, the science that supports life arising from non-living chemicals is not nearly as settled as it is usually thought. Moreover, as we'll learn today, evolution as a hypothesis is defined so flexibly that it is nearly impossible to find a consensus on what the term actually means. Today, we'll be looking at what the terms evolution and natural selection actually mean and how God's provision for the adaptation of the species has been misused in a way that violates the rules of logic and evidence. Specifically, today we're going to see that the concept of natural selection had actually been recognized by biblical creationists before Charles Darwin ever put a pen to paper to publish his most famous book. But before we get too far into our discussion, Dr. Sarfati, would you like to say a word of greeting to the Anchored by Truth listeners? 
Well, thank you very much for inviting me uh, and greetings to all the Anchored by Truth listeners and thank you for tuning in. My name is Jonathan Safety. I am actually from a different country, as you can probably tell by now. I'm from New Zealand and Australia, but I have lived in this country for nine years. We have two little granddaughters who live in Bartow, Florida. One reason we came over here, I did take out American citizenship uh, two months ago. I've been working for Creation Ministries International for 23 years now. I am a PhD scientist. I studied chemistry and physics for my PhD in spectroscopy. I'm also a retired chess master. I was New Zealand chess champion a number of years ago. I sometimes play blindfold chess, which is chess from memory against a number of different people. So that's a little hobby of mine I do sometimes. Dr. Sarfati, during our last few episodes, we had been discussing several key points that demonstrate that the Earth and the universe are much younger than conventionally assumed. First, there are significant scientific problems with the way dates have been traditionally assigned to the age of the universe and the Earth. Second, there is a considerable body of scientific evidence that supports the ages for creation and the Earth derived from Genesis. Third, the Noah Flood dispels the need for a long-age uniformitarianism to explain the geological configuration of the Earth. A long time period is absolutely essential to placing any confidence in, as you put it, a particles-to-people concept of evolution. But there are other problems with the notion that life arose from non-life and blind, random forces produced all the brilliant diversity we see on the Earth today. But before we get too deep into our discussion, the term evolution is often given widely varying meanings. What does the term evolution actually mean? Well, this is a real problem because a lot of the propaganda uses evolution in at least two different ways. It's called the fallacy of equivocation or a bait and switch. I mean, they'll talk about evolution in one way and then use that to prove the other way. Like for instance, sometimes evolution is defined as the change of allele or gene frequencies over time. But the thing is, no creationist in the world doubts that things change. Because the real issue is evolution as defined by G.A. Kirkut of Southampton University, which says the general theory of evolution is a theory that all living things in the world evolved from a single-celled ancestor, which itself came from inorganic chemicals. That is the theory in dispute, not that things change, but then a lot of the propaganda, a lot of the supposed evidence for evolution is evidence that things change, which no one disputes. Thank you. That was very helpful. So let's delve more deeply into some of the issues associated with natural selection and evolution. Can you comment a little more on the fact that Christian scientists had considered the possibility of natural selection as a mechanism for the creation of new species before Darwin wrote The Origin of Species? And if so, what was Darwin's contribution to science? Well, it's interesting that even the late evolutionist Stephen Jay Gould said that all the pre-Darwinian creationists understood natural selection as a reality. It would eliminate the unfit. See, creationists have not disputed that there is such a process going on. And again, it's not a case of creating a fit, it's elimination of the unfit. That's a key point to understand. And this process is part of the creation and fall model, because now we exist in a fallen world where there's death in the world, Natural selection uses this process of death to eliminate the less fit and keep the population from degrading too quickly. So 
The pre-Darwinians understood this, but Darwinian wanted to have natural selection as a creative force, and that goes beyond the evidence. And so did Alfred Russell Wallace propose this idea independently of Darwin. I think they were both independently proposing the idea that natural selection could act as a creative force. That's their contribution. But I don't believe it's a contribution to science because it's not observed. What does natural selection mean, and how does it operate? Now, it's interesting now, evolutionists have never intended natural selection to be a literal selection by an intelligence. Darwin and, and Wallace and people today like Dawkins make it very clear it's a blind process. And a better way of talking about it is differential reproduction. So the so-called fit organisms are the ones that leave the most offspring. So the unfit organisms cannot leave any offspring. And what it means also is that natural selection will eliminate the unfit for whatever reason it does. It helps to explain how we get a lot of different adaptations, a lot of different varieties. Natural selection has been operating to eliminate the genes that didn't cope with the environment they're in. But it's a real process, but it's not a creative process. It's a culling process. Is it fair to say that the critical factor that precludes random, undirected activity even at the molecular level, from enabling simpler life forms to evolve into more complex life forms is the inability of random activity to create the additional information within the cell that enables all complex life to function. The general theory of evolution, which can be paraphrased as from goo to you via the zoo, requires information to go uphill. See, the primordial soup would have zero information, the simplest self-reproducing cell we know of is called mycoplasma, which has about 600 kilobytes of information. Incredibly compressed information, but 600 kilobytes nonetheless. Now, we have about 3 gigabytes of information, so 5,000 times as much. So if this process had happened, there must be a way of generating new genes with new information, new instructions. See, we have things that a single-cell creature doesn't have, okay? We have eyes and nose, a brain, nervous system, blood vessels, muscles, which the mycoplasma doesn't have. So we've got far more information. So how did this information write itself? That is what evolution has to try to explain. And the only thing they've got to do that with is mutations, which are the typo when genes are copied. But I can promise you that if your book had a typo, it wouldn't be better. And the reason is there are many more ways of being worse than being better. So the mutations corrupt the information. At best, they go sideways, but most of the time they go downhill. Even if it's a little bit downhill, it's still going downhill. So it's important to realize we're not talking about a micro and macro. That's, I think, a misleading distinction. It's not small versus large. It's up versus down. How can the loss of genetic information actually contribute to enhanced survival of a species in some circumstances? Okay, now, creationists are not denying there's such a thing as a beneficial mutation. Beneficial just means it's advantageous to you, okay? But even the beneficial mutations we look at turn out to be information-destroying things, because, again, it's far easier to break things than to make things. For instance, going to an Arctic climate with a lot of snow, it may be an advantage to lose all your pigmentation so you're white. So your camouflage, whether you're a prey animal or a predator animal, it's good to be camouflaged. That's a loss of information that happens to be advantageous. 
Or another good example is the flightless creatures, insects and birds on desert islands. Because you can imagine a pregnant creature comes into the desert island by wind, okay, lays eggs, whether it's a beetle or a bird lays eggs, okay. The problem is if the little ones, they eventually mature, they have flight, they fly up in the air, a gust of wind blows them to the sea, they die. Now, if you had a mutation that stops the power of flight, then they don't fly up and get blown into the sea. So in fact, losing flight is an advantage to these creatures, but it's still a loss of something. It's not a gain of something. It doesn't explain how flight arose in the first place. Can genetic mutations ever create new information? Would it ever be possible for a single-celled ancestor to create all the genetic information present in humans and other higher orders of animals? So I don't want to be too categorical about this because information is foundationally a matter of probability. So I don't want to say that mutations can never go uphill. Just the probability is so minute. And it's not a case of just getting a little bit of information. You need encyclopedic quantities of information to change a mycoplasma into a man or particles into people, prokaryotes into professors. So see, they haven't got any explanation for the encyclopedic amount of information that even the simplest living creature must have. What resources would you recommend for Christians who want to study the scientific problems with evolution? Well, you might like the book called The Greatest Hoax on Earth, because that was actually a response to possibly the world's leading Darwinist today, Richard Dawkins. He wrote a book called The Greatest Show on Earth, which is supposed to provide the greatest evidence he could find to prove evolution, because he admitted his previous books didn't prove evolution. They assumed evolution to be true. So here he was remedying this by actually giving evidence he thought proved evolution. So my book went through his book point by point and showed where he is totally fallacious. And he's one of the people who plays this dishonest bait and switch game. I'll tell you how he does that. He says, evolution is just the change of gene frequency over time. And then he says, 40% of Americans deny evolution. I can promise him that 40% of Americans don't deny that gene frequencies change over time. So you see how he's actually playing bait and switch with evolution, and that's coming from the top, evolutionists in the world. If evolution equals change of gene frequency over time, then it's a fact, but then who has ever disputed that? All the leading creationist organizations must be evolutionists if that's what it means. I must be an evolutionist if that's what it means. Uh, but the idea that single-celled creatures evolve from some sort of primordial soup, they've got no clue about how that could have happened. Okay, but even getting started. And if you can't even get a simple self-reproducing cell, then the whole idea of natural selection can't even get off the ground because natural selection is differential reproduction. One thing A is fitter than thing B because it leaves more offspring. Okay, so before you have natural selection, you must have reproduction. So if you haven't got a self-reproducing cell from a primordial soup, you haven't got natural selection even started. It is often claimed that evolution is not a theory, it is a fact. Is evolution indeed a fact? I really would like to advise any readers never to say evolution is just a theory, because theory in science means something that's supported by evidence. I don't believe evolution is supported by evidence. It doesn't deserve to be a theory, like gravity, electricity. In fact, evolution is more like a conjecture or a hypothesis, never to the level of theory. That's too good to describe it. 
You openly acknowledge that you approach the examination of evidence pertaining to the origin of the universe, earth, and life as a biblical creationist. Why doesn't this compromise the validity of your conclusions? Well, okay, first of all, I mean, if you can start from the wrong premise and still get the right conclusions, it happens all the time. Now, I'm not conceding my premises are false. I'm just saying that starting from them doesn't guarantee you have a wrong conclusion because that would be a fallacy called denying the antecedent. Okay, the other thing is, I admit I start from the Bible. Why should I try to hide it? But the point is, evolutionists have their starting point of materialistic dogma. Some of the more honest ones have admitted that they actually look for a materialistic explanation, regardless of how counterintuitive it seems. In the words of Richard Lewontin, who is a Marxist geneticist, he said, we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. So the evolutionists also start with an assumption, but their assumption is just that there's no God or no God has actually done anything in a practical way that we can measure. And therefore they start with that. But also they have the assumption of uniformitarianism, that the present is the key to the past. So again, the assumption has never been a global flood. So what we could look at is things that we see happening today. So both sides start with assumptions, just that we are fairly upfront with ours. Yeah, so it's a case uh, we want a level playing field, and that's only fair that if they're allowed to have their assumptions of materialism and supposedly not affect the strength of their conclusions, why are we not allowed to have our assumptions? In your opinion, what are the most important facts that Christians should know that demonstrate that particles-to-people evolution is not supported by actual scientific evidence? Well, the main thing is to realize that the particles-to-people evolution requires information to go uphill. So to demonstrate that, you must show information-increasing changes. But what we see instead is natural selection culling information, and we see mutations corrupting information. And what varieties are produced by is sorting out pre-programmed information, because it does look like God programmed different created kinds with huge amount of genetic variation so that their offspring could have a wide variety and be able to adapt to different environments, sometimes through natural selection, eliminating the unfit varieties. What does the term functionality threshold mean, especially as it relates to the inability of non-living chemicals to randomly collide and generate living creatures? Now, there are structures that have to have a minimal functionality. It means you have to have a certain number of things working together. Otherwise, it cannot be functional. I mean, think of things that we build. A motor has to have something rotating, something stationary, something which provides a current source, and also to switch the direction of the, the current so the motor is always going in one direction. So a lot of different components are required for motors to work. So natural selection can't select for a motor because it won't select for any of the components because the components have no use unless they're all combined into one thing. And this has been called a functionality threshold or irreducible complexity. And there are many things in the living world which are just like that. In fact, every living thing has miniature motors, real electrical motors, like the molecule called ATP synthase, which is a rotary motor so tiny that 100,000 can fit side by side in a millimeter. It rotates about 10,000 revs per minute, and it produces ATP, which is a molecule that's used as the energy currency of all life. 
So imagine all these different components have to be working together and it has to be in the membrane to provide the electrical voltage to provide the electric current that drives it. So a lot of different components have to be working together. And even things which are better known like the eye. Now, Darwin admitted the eye was incredibly complex, but he also thought that it could have been built up by simpler light-sensitive cells and then a cup forming and then something forming a lens. The problem is there's no such thing as a simple light-sensitive cell. The biochemistry involved in turning a, a light photon into an electrical signal is incredible. So there's no such thing as a simple beginning. Even the so-called simple starting point that Dawkins and Darwin assume required an incredible amount of complexity to get even to the point of light sensitivity. And then you also have to have the brain or something to interpret it. I mean, even a bacterium that has lights into a cell has to have something to say, well, this light, this shadow or something means there's a predator about to eat me, so I better run away. Okay, so you must have something to do something with the light information. So otherwise by itself, what's the point of detecting light unless you do something with it that makes a difference to survival? So the big takeaway from our discussion today is that evolutionists consistently commit the logical fallacy of equivocation and the use of the term evolution to create a veneer of scientific respectability to defend an anti-supernatural secularism. This reinforces the conclusion that we have seen through the Truth in Genesis series. There are significant problems with common consensus that the universe is billions of years old and that the evolutionary hypothesis has been proven scientifically. Methods for assigning ancient days to long-past events are not as reliable as normally thought, and the Genesis Flood explains geological phenomena that are observed around the globe. So if a billions-of-years age for the Earth is not necessary to explain either geological or paleontological discoveries, maybe we should begin considering an alternative. This means that the conclusion we get from Genesis, that God created all the various kinds of animals, is amply supported by empirical observations and scientific evidence. Dr. Sarfati, we'd really like to thank you for joining us on Anchored by Truth today. And just as a reminder to our audience, this show, as well as all the Anchored by Truth episodes, will be available by podcast shortly after the broadcast airing. So any listener today who has a friend or study group that could benefit from Dr. Sarfati's depth of knowledge can go to their favorite podcast app and search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal Sea Books. Today for our closing prayer, since we may often be the only one who can be the voice of God to bring God's truth to our friends, how about today if we pray for those friends? A Prayer for Friends Heavenly Lord and Holy Father, we bless you and exalt you as we bow down before you. We are grateful that we can come into your presence and find a willing and loving master. You are the one who framed the mountains and carved out the oceans. How much more then can you assist your children? Lord, we thank you for the blessings of having friends. We believe that it is you who brings people into our lives who are a source of joy and fulfillment to us. We pray that you would help us to provide the same blessings to others. 
We thank you that you have helped us to meet people who help us to go beyond ourselves. Friends whose hearts are loving and generous toward us and who have steadfast spirits that keep them with us even during the difficult times. We pray that you would bless our friends with health, strength, and prosperity. We ask that you would look into the deepest recesses of their hearts as only you can and find the secret hopes and dreams there. As it conforms to your will, fulfill their desires and bring them more completely into your presence. Seek out those who do not yet embrace your name and your Son and bring them into communion with you. Let them know that only friendships grounded in you will last for eternity and that joy unspeakable awaits those who put on Christ and then fellowship in His kingdom. Help us to be sensitive to the dings and dents of life that afflict others and help us to speak kind and encouraging words especially when troubles are weighing them down. Help us to take action where such action will relieve pain or provide comfort. But help us also to know the boundaries that we should not cross. As Christ did, let us build relationships among the people we treasure and help us always to seek the good of others, even when we must set some of our own desires aside. It is your good pleasure to provide good gifts to us all, and it is impossible that we should ever bless others without being blessed by you. Bring harmony and peace to our relationships. Help us for our part to not injure or grieve others. Help us to be peacemakers using the example that your Son gave to us. Forgive us and help us to forgive others that all will know that we are the possession of your Son. In Christ's name we pray and offer praise. Amen. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time when we'll continue our discussion with Dr. Sarfati, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also or listen to the podcast version of this or the other shows. Crystal Sea Books would like to make sure that all the Anchored by Truth listeners know that if they enjoy listening to the prayers that are presented at the end of each episode, those prayers are available for individual use from Amazon. There are two different prayer albums available. One album is prayers for family and friends, and another is prayers about faith and freedom. Those prayers can make a thoughtful centerpiece of daily devotions, or they can be used with Bible study groups or small group meetings. There are even prayers for friends who are sick or about to undergo medical procedures that you can share with those who are experiencing difficult moments. Sometimes it's hard to find just the right words to speak to people or even to speak to the Lord. These earnest and thought-provoking prayers can help, not to be substitutes for your own fervent prayers, but as a sort of friend to come alongside and let you know that others have walked through the valley too. The individual prayers, or an entire album, are available for a modest fee, and all the funds go to support the work of bringing the truth of Scripture to our current culture. To find the prayer albums, just go to Amazon and search on Purposeful Prayers to find either the Faith and Freedom album or the Family and Friends album. You can also find R.D. Fierro's meditational and devotional book on prayer 
which is also entitled Purposeful Prayers, Learning to Pray Like Jesus. As R.D. says in the book, the whispered prayer that stirs the hand of God is one of the most powerful forces in the universe. It's time for all of us to come boldly before the throne of grace, and all of us, and anchored by truth, would like to encourage everyone to be blessed by God's amazing grace. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.